0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. With you, as always, is Bob. Live in the lounge, staring at the Ouija board. Tonight's guest uh, I met probably about six months ago. Um, I met him at a party. And uh, sometimes you meet somebody for the first time, and it's not really necessarily the first time. Could have been friends with them in another life or something. Something about tonight's guest just I gravitated towards. Um, he was a, a rock and tour. He could tell a really good story. He had a very um, loving presence, and he seemed like to be the center of the party I was at. And uh, he also shares my first name. So immediately when you got two Bobs, you know, it's going to click no matter what. Um, Bob told me this story um, and it it resonated with me. And I kept thinking about it, you know, and um, it's difficult to have like sometimes like okay when this subject matter comes up it's it's not really talked about in the long form it's kind of glossed over you know and like people are like yeah it happened and that's it we don't want to like dissect the problem really get into how we can prevent this from happening to other people and um it's important to hear you know a survivor's story um so basically in a nutshell bob told me that you know when he was a teenager his family pastor um robert lee bartlett jr molested him you know and it was It was hard to hear because you know um i do know some people in my you know immediate circle that have also been the victim of something very similar and um he he said he wrote a book on it and i was just like yeah i'll definitely take a look at it and uh it's a it's a really well-written book um Uh, Jim Femino uh, says this book and I quote is a roadmap of sorts that speaks to the hearts of all fallen Christians who believe incorrectly that they have fallen too far from our creator's love to find their way home. It proclaims you are welcome again in your heavenly father's house. So with that being said, um, we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about, um, just how like, you know, this affects people's lives and what we can do to, you know, counter the pain and, and to move on and to also accept, you know, God back into your life. Um, with that being said, I want to re- welcome tonight's guest, Robert Bob Newmiller, to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Bob. I appreciate that gracious introduction.
0: Of course, man. Um, so I mean, you know, when you first told me the story, it was it was very difficult for me to uh, to hear, just because I could tell that you were you're still going through it, you know, and that's just what happens to, um, survivors of something like this. It's a, it's a lifelong process. And as we discussed prior to this podcast, I wanted to give you a voice so you could talk about it in long form, you know, and like get your thoughts and get your, your feelings out there.
1: I very much appreciate that Uh, it's a very rare opportunity that we uh, get a chance to talk about the impact of this crime on our lives it's a very difficult conversation for a lot of people however I will tell you that uh, if there was nothing else that came from the book uh, the reality that I can speak about it without becoming emotional I believe is a, a direct result of taking the time to sit down and write the book Uh, This has been a lifelong struggle for me Um, I sometimes describe myself as living on the edge of suicide as a lot of victims of this crime do and I have come to learn that the reality of it is that any life that is impacted in the development stage by sexual impropriety and sexual abuse uh, essentially spends the rest of their lives in that arena Uh, Not in the sense of participating, of course, but in the sense of realizing that they were victimized without even realizing that they were being victimized. And I also believe that our sexual roots are probably the greatest foundation of the people that we turn out to be. And when those roots are poisoned, it puts us in a position where the impact has to be taken to the grave.
0: Yeah, you know, it was. I think the last time I saw you was like a week or two ago, and you said something that night that I thought about days after. The, and excuse me if I if I'm incorrectly remembering this quote, but you basically said um, the the pollution of our sexuality. Yes, that, that's what you said, right? Yeah, right. you know, it, it's it's very true. Like these these defining years in our life, you know, like these the upbringing, and also too, like when you involve like you know spirituality and you involve a church, like. It gets complicated you know and this happened to you when you were a teenager um, the book was published in 2012 so like you said you know it was very therapeutic for you to sit down and write it what was the you know what was the moment where you're like I've got to I've got to get this out
1: um, well it took me about three years to get the book written there were some circumstances that arose in the process of writing it that put me in a stalled position um, however the the Genesis, if you would, of me moving forward with the project was I just kept feeling this nagging urge within myself uh, that I felt was heaven sent to put my thoughts to paper. And so I sat down and tried to write a preface, which came very naturally. And in the process of that preface, I realized that I still had unanswered questions. And so I decided that I would move forward with the endeavor and just write and uh, revise and write and revise and write and revise until I felt that I had reached a place where I had put together a a good piece of literature. Mm -hmm. And the reality of it is that the questions that were put forward in the preface were answered in the process of writing the book so would you say that it was therapeutic for you uh, uh, therapeutic in the sense that I have the free the, that my tongue has been released mm. uh, I'm no longer bound in silence I'm no longer voiceless I can talk about this crime I can talk about how it comes about I can talk about how yeah. comfortable it is to yield To the seduction that brings it about Um, and and that may have its own genesis in the reality that we're all looking for uh, someone I didn't have a father Uh, I had a stepfather and he was quite violent with my brother which scared me a lot Uh, but um, we look for someone who has any type of recognition or any type of power or is any type of a position where the people around us look up to them and then to be offered any opportunity to um, for our lives to be touched and improved by that person we we grope for and mm-hmm. in doing so. They find opportunity to take advantage, and that's exactly what happened. As far as the book is concerned, it wasn't cathartic in the sense that I have this big healing uh, from the book. I'm happy that people that read it tell me that it was really well written and what have you, but it wasn't cathartic in the sense of I no longer wake up thinking about it. I no longer go to bed thinking about it. It no longer comes into my mind when I'm engaged in a loving relationship with my wife because all that stuff still happens and it's been 43 or 44 years.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a tough process to to get over and uh there is no separation of time and space sometimes for people who have been victims of a trauma like this and um it's a lifelong process but um so like I going to touch upon like what you were saying there like so like there's this whole like philosophy that um we have two fathers in our lifetime. Have you ever heard that before? So like, you know, we have our biological father and then we have a secondary father, somebody we look up to later in life or something like that, you know, like a- You know, father figure. You father know. figure or like somebody who's, you know what I mean? Like somebody that you, you know, uh, become like an apprentice to or something like that. So, I mean, in the spring of 1975, this guy, Robert Lee Bartlett Jr. Um, comes into your life and he tells you right away, you're special and, um, you describe in the book that your congregation seemed to be under his spell. Um, he was a very um, charismatic charismatic public speaker. Uh, he, there's parts of the book where you talk about how he would you know, uh, command the room and he had a really engaging stage presence. Um, the audience multiplied uh, during this time from just a few people to almost 700. And uh, at this time, he asked you to start traveling with him. And um, what happened was for the people out there who don't understand what a trauma bond is um, can you explain to me like what that is sure Um, it started out
1: that and I'll just elaborate a little bit our congregation was was led by an elderly pastor that was very very good um, very capable was able to deliver the Bible in an understandable fashion and uh, he he was a great guy and um, he decided to retire and there was an organization called Teen Challenge Uh, some folks have heard of it. it is now a global organization but this Bob Bartlett was uh, the director of the Philadelphia chapter of Teen Challenge and uh, he had spoken at our church two or three times with very very good results and the end result was that when Pastor Robertson decided that he was going to retire uh, the board decided they were going to look at other candidates and Bob Bartlett was a natural because he his Teen Challenge operation was located on Broad Street. The church was situated at 18th and Spring Garden Street in Philadelphia. And um, the first two rows of the pews, if you would, were filled with students from the Teen Challenge program, uh, many of which were young many of which were in their late teens some of which were in their early 20s but they were all in trouble with the law and they were all trying to beat drug and and alcohol addictions and violence in their homes Mm. and things of that nature Um, so with the, the with his ability to be able to command an audience through his speaking capacity with the fact that he put himself forward as a preacher of the gospel and with the locality of his operation for Teen Challenge, all being so situated that, that it was easy—an easy choice, if you would—for the board to take a quick vote and elect him as the new pastor. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how he got into the church. Yeah. As to uh, as to the circumstances with myself, he essentially came into the church. The audience went from 200 and change to 750 or so. And it got so full that the ushers had to set up folding chairs at the end of all the pews in order to facilitate the crowd. It had a big balcony that was full every week. And it wasn't just Sunday morning services. This guy was so dynamic that Sunday morning the church was full. Sunday night the church was primarily full. And they had a Wednesday night service. And I would say in most cases, Less than 20% of people attend Wednesday night services, but for his uh, Operation uh, the the church was probably probably had about 400 in attendance on Wednesday night services Mm -hmm. So it was just an it's it was easy to look up to him As someone that could be respected and trusted and to go a step further uh, When he showed a little bit of interest in myself uh, my mother who had uh, been through some very rough waters and uh, had been married for the second time my mother essentially was like wow you gotta you know you gotta hang out with this guy if he wants to take you with him for a missionary trip you need to go if you uh, if he wants to engage you in his life it will be of no consequence but good if you engage in his life and Mm. so it was almost like a push yeah uh, to 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 uh accept this person into my life as a mentor
0: yeah and that must have been difficult because then i mean like you're you're a teenager and when you're a teenager you're very susceptible towards your surroundings so you got a congregation now that's gravitating towards this guy and you even have your your mom saying like you should go and like spend time with this guy and um you know it's for people who are listening to this who maybe have gone through something like this or have kids who want to prevent something like this from happening, looking back, what was the moment where you realized that it was stepping over into like inappropriate like you know behavior
1: well let me further elaborate on yeah, the concept
0: do. of trauma bound
1: because I yeah. kind of avoided yeah. the subject yeah. without even realizing it with all that was going on with all the accolades that he was receiving with all of the the entire body of the congregation essentially. Mm-hmm um uh, worshiping him um it was very easy to be seduced by him because i felt that i was moving with the flow of what was appropriate um when and i'll get a little graphic uh, when he began to kiss me Mm -hmm. um i didn't feel that 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 there was something wrong with that i you know the first couple of kisses were on the cheek and in public and then it became a situation where uh, it was moved into a more private setting in his office at the, at the church. And um, you don't even realize that you're a victim. There's this strange phenomenon when you feel like you're receiving something a kind, uh, or akin to a kindness from a person and they're in fact abusing you as a, as a teenager. As a even younger than teenagers, there's plenty of kids that have been abused at ten mm-hmm. and nine and eight years old sexually. But as a teenager, uh, there's a lot going on in your body that uh, that causes you to desire some form of gratification and uh, on the sexual level. And it just didn't feel like I was being abused. It felt like I was being treated with special care. Yeah. And so that was essentially how I fell into the trap.
0: And it, 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 there's something to be said about um, like people like Robert Lee Bartlett and, you know, other people out there, they they've, they vet their victims. They they look for for ways that they can, you know, do this. No question about it. Uh, they they plot it. They plan it. They make
1: uh, the circumstances fit their narrative. So everything yes. seems like it's moving forward in a, a natural direction when, in fact, they're just seducing you.
0: And at this point in your life, you you bring up something very interesting. It's also, you know, at this time, you know, when you're a teenager, there's so much stuff going on inside you and it's very hard to to decipher. When he asked you to start um, traveling with him and then when he started asking you to, when he started in the book, there's a part where he starts to um, assign sleeping arrangements. And then when he says he wants you to come stay with you did you still feel that sense of gratification
1: gratification is probably like, he wants word me, because like it's going to be interpreted as sexual but and, you know what i'm uh, saying though like but, did you feel special because yes yeah. I, I did i felt like i was among the selected mm-hmm. group little did i know how big the group was uh, just as an aside uh, the same time that he was molesting me he was molesting five or six Students from the Teen Challenge program at the very same time, so he had a sexual abuse uh, network going. And no, I was not aware. Uh, No one is. I. I don't think any victims of this particular crime, um, short of physically seeing the abuse happening elsewhere, feels (laughs) like there's anybody else involved. They feel. I had the feeling that uh, I was receiving special treatment because he thought of me as someone special.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry that the, all this happened, and um, you don't need to be sorry. Yeah, it's, it's, it just shouldn't happen to anybody, and uh, it's it's unfortunate that these these stories they have to be heard because we need to prevent stuff like this from happening. Um, I mean, at this time, like you're, this is happening to you at the same time. You're also a teenager, and you're you know allowing Christ into your life did this test your faith <laughs> at that age yeah. I know who you are now and I know you're very you know yeah I mean everything um, you, you say is very spiritual and I, I find uh, you know I mean like at that one quote you said I it resonates I mean at this time like since this guy's doing this to you what's your th- like when what was the turning point really for you though where you realized this has gone too far
1: there really was no turning point, to be candid. It was an 11-month experience for me with multiple episodes. Um, hmm. Always felt as though I was receiving special treatment because of a special concern for me. Hmm. Um, however, the the, the the realization point, if you will, uh, happened when we lived in Royers Ford, Pennsylvania. Hmm. My uh, grandmother, who lived with us, had uh, run down to the train station in Roseford to pick me up. I don't even recollect where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, I got in the car, and uh, as we started to drive up the the hill on Main Street, uh, she just asked a very simple question. She said, has Bob Bartlett done anything to you that he shouldn't have? And that was the moment when I realized that I was being abused. How did she... She just asked a simple question. Is is he doing anything? Has he done anything to you that he shouldn't have? By that point, there was a a bona fide effort in the church to expose him for what he was. Yes. He had skipped out on the church for a couple of weeks. Um, He told the board he was very sick, and they told the congregation he was very sick, and they scrambled for special speakers. But... I didn't know that allegations of sexual child sexual molestation had been brought against him by other people yes and um, so my grandmother being a superintendent of the Sunday School Department at the church at the time was obviously a part of all the meetings and what have you so when she asked me if he had done something wrong it was in that moment that everything just became Clarity and high high definition, if you would. I realized at that moment that that I wasn't anything special, and that this was a crime being perpetrated on my life.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, for many people who are dealing at this, you know, this particular point in your life, you know, like it's very difficult to um, process these feelings, these emotions. Not all the time, but most of the time adults or young teenagers young adults turn to drugs and alcohol to numb the pain right yes and can we talk about that and how that is counterproductive to getting to the healing process you know what i mean i do um
1: i i was still in high school at the time obviously i had a couple years to go i uh developed a cocaine habit um, I was one of the one of the guys in school that uh, always made people laugh. As a matter of fact, in my school, uh, in my yearbook, I was voted uh, two things: uh, most likely to uh, succeed and the funniest guy in the class. Hmm. Uh, it was a it was a, a, one of the methods by which I dealt with my difficulty to always have a joke on hand and always be able to to say something funny or to make a comment that would infuriate the teacher but make the kids laugh and so it started early enough for me I know a lot of kids drink and uh, and do alcohol Mm -hmm. and some drugs in in school Uh, so it started for me uh, right about the time well, at the time that I realized things were going on, I had dabbled in a little bit of smoking pot from here and you know, from time to time and, and what have you as mm-hmm. kids do. But as to the serious drugs, cocaine and the, the morphine and things like that, I didn't get involved in all that until uh, 11th grade or so. And it was counterproductive, I, I acknowledge. However, I still struggle with alcoholism. Um, don't consider myself a fall down drunk. Uh, um, I guess some folks might say that you're, that I'm a. Uh, um, what's the term they use? Um, uh, uh, well, there's a term out there, and
0: everybody knows what it is. It's, uh, yeah, you know, you're able. to I'm a functioning alcoholic, if you will. Um, I mean, the human condition. Is, uh, we're talking about humanity in general, right? So, the human condition requires certain levels of you need to have some sort of release and one of the things I would never do on the show in 236 episodes is judge people so if somebody wants to have a drink somebody wants to have something regardless that's their thing but what I am interested in is though is how victims of this type of crime this sex crime can beat down the emotion so much that they submerge themselves into a point where they're no longer acknowledging it did you ever get to a point where you just were in denial or was it always at the surface just lurking out between your eyes at the surface and lurking actually
1: didn't come until my mid-20s when I when I got out of high school I went into to a little construction business it was relatively successful Uh, built up a union shop. We did a lot of work in Philadelphia and the surrounding counties, and I immersed myself in business. Uh, we did uh, quite a bit of business, metal stud and drywall business. I always found myself more comfortable with the guys that smoked and drank and yeah. and and were willing to work hard for their money. And so, as the business began to succeed, I found myself in a sense, rolling in cash flow. That's not necessarily saying I was making any money, but the cash flow was there. And uh, so I uh, utilized that opportunity to start to enjoy some of the better things in life, good dining, nice car, things of that nature. But I was leading two separate lives. Um, I guess we'll get into that a little bit later. But I was living two separate lives. I had had. uh, submerged my thoughts deep enough with regard to the crime and, and how I felt about it that I really wasn't thinking about it but the reason for that in great measure was because I was so busy I had so many things going on in my life I was signing contracts and supplying jobs mm-hmm. and running around working with the tools and uh, I just got really really busy and that was a time in my life where I would say that I didn't give much thought to what had happened but that Happened as a result of general busyness.
0: Now, in this part the part of the book, um, I could relate to this part of the book very much. So, because you're in, you know in your 20s, you're making all this money, and then uh, one of the things that we all suffer from in the human condition is the allure of sin and how sin can come into your life in many different forms. But um, you talked about lust in the book, and I really I, I thought that what you said was profound really because it's the one sin that destroys everything it just gets in there and and ruins people's lives well as a matter of fact the it's the only sin
1: in the bible that we're told explicitly to run from yeah because it's just so easy to be ensnared in it yeah and to to uh enjoy the the sensual pleasures yeah that uh that the human body likes and so therefore we tend to um welcome lust and participate in lust in ways that we don't welcome and participate other sins um so um, i know the part of the book you're talking about maybe in a minute or two we'll get to that and i can just go ahead and read it to you I'm a much better writer than I am a speaker uh, I'm not real good on the fly but uh, when I have time to really sit down in a quiet place and yeah. write my thoughts down I do a better job so uh, why don't we just go ahead and take a minute and read that section of the book because I felt felt that it was quite profound myself yes and if it's okay with you I'll, I'd rather just read it from the Yeah, book. That's, that's perfect all right. Um, I, I just talk about the fact that I had really, um, in this particular chapter, I had really let my family, my children, my wife down, my marriage. I, I I put in the opening of the book that I had let my wife down on every possible level of, uh, of marital relationship by the time I was 23 years old. So when I got to the end of the chapter, I put these words down. In print, there was a grand lesson in all of this for me to learn. I can only describe it with these words Nature is content with little as the flowers grow, the birds are fed with ease, and the balance of creation moves forward from generation to generation. Grace is content with less as it flows from a source of superabundance wherein there is no soul too low to be touched, nor sin too great to be forgiven however lust yes lust is content with nothing as it burns within the human heart as a consuming fire destroying everything around it it is the divider of homes families friends and hearts leaving in its wake brokenness and death how can the human heart covet such a destroyer let each person all of humanity answer this question individually
0: yeah that's that's i think that's the exact paragraph that i was talking about i mean it gets in there and it's just like an infestation of like uh, your life and like you know the part that the, the the book then evolves into this this part where you know you kind of hit rock bottom you know yeah this one point in the book you you uh you leave your home you move into your boat and uh like th- this like whole contemplation of your life at this time and t- there's this part that i remember where it's just like you know i felt like once i like the boat wasn't in the water yet but then once you got the boat in the water you felt like better and like you felt like you were you know getting yourself you know out there you're float your back floating you know and like i really think that sometimes you have to hit the bottom in order to in order to realize oh man I got to get back to the surface you know what I mean like
1: yeah I, I actually think it's a little bit more complicated than that I think we, when we hit bottom we realize that there that there's nothing else to help us but trying to move on to a, to move in a different direction in our lives yeah. I'll tell you a little about that boat experience yeah. um, I had separated from my wife I had uh, left my family I had taken up residence with someone else and um, there was a period uh, of a short period of time where I really felt like, you know, my life was in great in a great spot. But then things started to fall apart from there. I ended up deciding I needed to be alone and didn't want any uh, complications, relationships, whatever you want to call it, yeah. uh, in my life. And so I went to this old bootyard where I knew the, the manager and said, hey, you know, I'll make you a deal if you'll give me that old... Chris Craft Cavalier, 1969 Chris Craft Cavalier uh, as a little apartment, even though it's up on blocks. Um, I'll, I'll do some carpenter work around here. I had my, my business had collapsed and mm-hmm. everything was a mess. And uh, so I just decided that I would go to a place where nobody knew me and I didn't know anybody and uh, kind of immerse myself in loneliness. Um So, nevertheless, I I lived on the boat with a garden hose hooked up as the water source and a a couple electric cords running onto the boat so that I could have lights and cook food and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I lived in solitude for a period of about seven or eight months, did a lot of reading um, and just kind of put myself in a position where I came to terms with the reality that the construction business was no longer the answer, Um, Mm -hmm. running around... On my wife was no longer the answer. Um, trying to pull myself up by my bootstraps was no longer the answer because it was a time in my life where I had to be still and be quiet. And it was also a turning point in my life because it was the point at which God was able to speak to my heart and draw me back to an interest in what I had in my youth before the catastrophe. Yeah. And that was that I was a young. Teenager uh, that I believed wholeheartedly in creation as made by God. And I, I believed that, in fact, he did send his son to die on the cross to save us from our sin. But I needed that quiet time because all of the other adulation that I had brought into my life put me in a place where I couldn't hear God's voice for any reason. As a matter of fact, I barred his providence from my life yeah Um, and it took those months of of lonely contemplation to really bring me to a point where i said to myself i have to i have to look back i have to depend on god because he's the only answer for me at this point
0: so would you say that that point in your life you start living for christ again no that was a process as
1: well um that was when uh, uh my wife and I began to reconnect she was gracious enough to bring the kids down to the boat and uh, I had two sons at the time they were relatively young and she was gracious enough to drive them down every other weekend and uh, from time to time uh, I insisted she let me be alone with the with the boys but most of the time she came and we were able to start interacting again Um, Upon, upon returning home, which I, I talk more about in the book and what the experience was to try and bring everything back together, not in my power, I might add. Um, mm-hmm. My wife was the rock and I was the sand at the time. Um, but in in returning to home, I started to look at books that I had on my library. I had a pretty big library of about three or 350 books. And, um, so my, in my mind, as I say, in the book, I started to contemplate whether I really understood what I had learned as a child with regard to various scripture texts. Mm -hmm. So I started to engage myself in review of those texts to see if I understood them right. Mm -hmm. And that really had an impact on my life. My focus in, God's word and my time spent paying attention to that as opposed to earthly demands was a time in which I began to make a transition back to faith and that took took four or five years before I really surrendered if you would to what the Bible had
0: to tell me mm. I'm glad that happened for you
1: I am as well I mean that's, you, know? Uh, you know people say what was the lifeline and I, I, I had a fella come to me yeah uh, probably ten years my senior I was doing business with the guy and uh, he called me one day and said listen I really really want to meet you for lunch there's something I really want to talk to you about and um, I didn't realize that he had uh, received a copy of my book and, and had read it and so we met together at the Limerick golf course mm-hmm. and uh, we sat down for lunch and after a little bit of small talk and business talk he finally laid out why he had come to to sit with me and he had had a, a similar experience it was a family member it was an uncle he yeah. had molested him for a couple of months mm-hmm. and uh he said to me i can't get over it now this fellow again was probably 10 years my senior and uh He said, I just can't get over it. You got to help me. You got to tell me what you did to bring you back. And his name was Steve. And I said, Steve, I don't have anything else to offer you than what I told you in the book. The reality of it is that God has made this change in my life. It's, 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 It's a matter of surrender. I surrendered and he began the healing process. Steve said to me, you don't understand. I've spent $300,000 in counseling this far in my life and I cannot get past this. Mm. I said, Steve, I I I can only repeat what I've said already. Um, You read the book. If you want to talk about how God worked in my life to bring about the healing, let's do that. If you think I'm going to give you some other avenue to venture down that may bring some healing to you. I don't have that Avenue. Uh, Tried drinking, tried drugging, mm-hmm. tried running around, tried all those things to to superficially uh, cover the wounds, but the wounds are still gaping. How is Steve today? Uh, his reply was, well, you know, I'm Jewish and uh, we have different ideas about what the Bible says. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, I'm willing to talk to you anytime about this. I'd like to see healing come about for you. But he said something that struck me actually. He said, my behavior is abhorrent. And I said to him, do you know what abhorrent means? And he said, oh, yeah, I know what abhorrent means. I learned that in the first $200,000 in therapy. He said, I'm terrible. I'm I'm mean to my wife. I'm hard on my kids. I I don't allow any peace in my own household because I'm still so angry Mm. that this happened to me. And so I said, okay, well, you hit the nail on the head with in there. I kind of wasn't expecting your definition to be so crystal clear, but it was. And so the effect on his life of this crime was that in his 60s, he was still Dealing s- with it. so damaged by what had happened that he couldn't have a relationship with his own family
0: you bring up an interesting fact in the book and uh, the book you say uh, approximately 90% of females report their molestation, whereas only 5% of men do so. And I think, I mean, I guess it's hard. It's, I, I know from experience, it's hard from, for certain men to experience, to express how they're feeling, to get it out. You know what I mean? To sure. really be like, look, this is what happened to me. Um, and it's a hard hard thing the hard thing when I read that thing was just like well that means there's people out there who I probably know who I don't know this about you know what I mean like that are suffering and suffering in silence
1: there's no doubt in my mind that you know people that this crime has been perpetrated upon yeah there's absolutely no doubt in my mind with regard to women they typically take five to seven years before they report yeah um, but men don't report because of the stigma With regard to men is so much greater and I don't mean to take this lightly and I don't mean to offend the youth or the me-too movement uh, but the reality of it is that At a very base level It's a more natural experience for women To engage in sex with men than it is for men to engage with sex with men so um when it becomes a relationship like that, the stigma of that particular circumstance weighs so heavy on our hearts that our tongues are silenced. We don't care about justice. We don't care about having that person exposed for a lot of years. And so therefore, after 10 or 15 years, we have basically compartmentalized in our minds what has happened enough that we can spend the rest of our days in silence
0: yeah um, one of the terms in the book that um I found fascinating because I'd, I'd, I'd heard it but I never understood the meaning of it is uh, Bathsheba am I saying that correctly yes Bathsheba Yeah. can you explain to the audience what that is yeah well um, King
1: David obviously was uh, considered one of the great kings of the, the of the Israelites and um, in his pride uh, he had had been a a, a pretty evil king although uh, he followed the worship of Jehovah or he he, uh, insisted within the kingdom of Israel that the Israelites worship Jehovah and that was really huge because Israel's history had been very spotty at times. They worshiped Jehovah and at times they didn't and Jehovah of course was in fact their God They had chosen Mm -hmm. him and uh, so David became quite sinful and he became lustful and uh, He was out on his Castle porch one day and he looked off the 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 porch and he saw a lady bathing below him and uh, he found her to be beautiful. Her name was Bathsheba. And so he invited her to the, to the castle for dinner and drinks, if you would, very common thing. And, um, he engaged in sexual intercourse with her at that time and she became pregnant. And, um, so he was in battle. The Israelites were in battle with another nation at the time, perhaps Syria. I'm not, pulling that from recollection but they were engaged in another in a battle and one of his lead generals uh, was married to Bathsheba so David invited her her husband to come off the battlefield and to dine with him in the castle and talk about what uh, they were accomplishing and uh, his sin had become so grave he had fallen so much in love with Bathsheba that he sent uh, his commander if you would back to battle with a sealed note to give to the person over him that he should be moved to the uh, front lines of battle mm-hmm. and the purpose of it was for him to be killed which which took place.
0: Yeah I, I, I looked it up and I researched that whole story and you know it's tragic um, I guess so the 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 book is very uh it's there's so many parts to it you know and like the, the part that um there's another thing that was really hard for me to uh to read just because i know how hard it was for you to get through i mean i guess we should talk about your brother frank
1: yeah sure um i spent, I spent a pretty good portion of the time talking about my brother frank um uh, he he was a good kid. Uh, he had a good heart. He was soft hearted. He obeyed his he obeyed his mother. We lived for quite a few years uh, under the the domicile of our grandparents uh, because my mother had a very vicious divorce and uh, she had my brother as a product of that first marriage. And then she had me as a product of a fling relationship. So I'm told, and uh, for years I was taught that I was the son of her first, one of the two sons of her first marriage. When in fact I am actually the son of a stranger father. Um, But nevertheless, Frank was generally a a nice guy, but somewhere around 10th or 11th grade, he was three years my senior, uh, he really began to fall off the bandwagon. He got very difficult. He started stealing. He was doing drugs. He was taking money from my mother's purse. He was causing a lot of uh, discomfort in the household. And uh, my mother had remarried by that point. And my stepfather, who had beat him on occasion uh, for Behavior he was unhappy with I mean beat him to the point of drawing blood Mm. Um, Told him he had to get out of the house and so at 18 years of age Frank left the house and lived in a tent for almost a year and uh, Obviously he got to a point where he had nowhere else to turn so he begged forgiveness and moved back into the house for a few months but then he went out on his own and uh, he he began to establish his own life Unfortunately, he wanted things that he wouldn't work for and uh, so, he became a, a larcenist, let's call it, and he began stealing from his employers and and uh, profiting off the products that he stole from his employers. And the long and the short of it is, he had uh, gotten caught up in a sting operation and they were bringing very serious charges against him and so I guess around the age of 21 or twenty-three. He began to run from state to state to hide from the law. Um, he got comfortable in his lifestyle of hiding and he set himself up in Florida. He got involved with a, a woman in Florida who brought her family in, not to his house so much, but uh, she had a, a daughter and a son in law and a, a, a granddaughter, and um. Frank uh, ultimately molested her for a period of about 15 months, starting at the tender age of nine years old. Uh, Frank got caught. It was a very difficult trial to go through. Yeah. I wanted things to be different. I, I elaborate far more and, and much more eloquently in the book, but uh, the long and the short of it is after a, a 15 or 20-year Period of running from the law, the worst in Frank came out and uh, he took out his, or he stole the the youth of a child to satisfy his sexual desires and he ultimately received a three year life sentence.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's so. It, I'm sorry, three times life sentence. Yeah. I apologize. It's okay. So, like, it's so tragic to read this because it's it's like you had to you you had this traumatic thing happen to you as a teenager starting in the you know 70s and then you go through all this you know in the 80s and then you have this moment of reckoning where you start to allow god back into your life and you you're you're making the path back towards you know your family and stuff like that and then like you get to the part of the book where you where you're, you know the the reader discovers that this happens again in a way to you and you find out that it's it's your brother and it was it's just a heartbreaking part of the book i was just like damn dude like this guy's been tested so much you know and like it was just difficult to read and then like realizing that the man who like you know he turns and he says to you mouths to you i love you before they take him away and it's just it just to me it was just very unfortunate that you had to deal with this for a lifetime you know it's like I and it's just never you know like when you're moving away from one thing another thing popped up how did you find strength to to get through that like the trip to Florida knowing this about your brother and like you know did it test you again like what were you going through um
1: yeah I I would say it tested me again Uh, more so in the sense that I Drew this false hope that this was just an allegation and perhaps my brother would mm. have done such a thing and What what really nags at me even today is that he was around during the Bartley years in our household He saw all the damage and destruction that it had caused uh, He knew just how painful it could be mm-hmm. uh, to to be so radically mishandled and um, as a child and uh, for him to gravitate to that behavior was was really hard for me to accept I yes. went to Florida hoping to find out that in fact it wasn't true hmm. and my heart was kind of set on the idea that uh, it was this was an allegation and it was to hide some other misdeed yeah. or something of the child and, and as, the, as the trial progressed which incidentally was like a two-year um timeline but mm-hmm. as the trial progressed and i finally l- listened to the the victim speak she just threw out a couple of things that i realized were the hook if you will um and that he had groomed her at the tender age of 9 years old to prepare her to go along with the sexual acts that he was going to perpetrate upon her yeah uh, as to, as to how did it impact me for season very short it threw me right back into that rebellious feeling where how does God let these things happen and so on and so forth but the real reality of it is that it's the evil that lurks in the human heart and jumps to the human mind that causes our evil behavior and if we don't have something to check that evil it can only get worse Mm.
0: So back, you know, the, the thing that I, I never forget the first time I met you, you know, you told me the story and then you, you know, you dropped this part on me that, you know, is really, I mean, like I, I wanted to, I wanted to do this podcast cause I wanted to get your message out there. I want you to get, get your story out there. I want to help other people. But the thing that I can't get past is the fact that Robert Lee is still out there.
1: Yeah. Uh, That uh, I I was speaking with my son-in-law actually just the other day explaining some of the circumstances that I've come through trying to uh, Bring him to justice. Uh, It is definitely not a vendetta. That is not my desire at all Um, however When I wrote the book, I didn't even realize I didn't know that he had a network of teenagers he was molesting at the same time and someone called me that was a member of the Teen Challenge program all the way back in the 70s. He was a staff member and he called me and asked if I knew, you know, where Bartlett was and what was going on and I said yes and he said to me, well, we want to put a group of four or five guys together and we want to, he's in Arizona incidentally, he said, we want to fly down to Arizona and confront him. Will you go with us? So I said, what would would the purpose of all that be? And uh, he said, well, we want him to confess his sin and to ask for forgiveness. And we see this as a potential last opportunity. Uh, Potentially, you know, the guy's 70s, he's in his 70s now. And uh, so we we really want to try and address it and see if we can uh, get him to acknowledge what he did and, and ask for forgiveness. And so I told him I would not participate in that because I feel that compelling a moment of repentance from somebody and getting them to slap out Mm -hmm. some prayer of forgiveness is really not an effectual way to deal with the issue so I have tried over the years to get law enforcement to help me I've been in touch with sheriff's offices, attorney general's offices, went to Harrisburg actually when they put out the Catholic church report last year uh, in a t-shirt that had printed on it. My molester was Robert Lee Bartlett Jr. And on the back of it, it said, now the pastor of Living Waters Church in Phoenix, Arizona. As I looked in, he's still the pastor there. He's still the pastor there. And that's Living Works. Living Water of the Valley. Living Water. Yeah. Um. As I started to investigate a little bit further uh, with regard to his activity, I found that he was taking, he, he boasted that he takes the youth of the church uh, to third world countries in order for them to be able to give their testimonies and things of that nature of what God's done in their life and how his Bob Bartlett's uh, work has been so faithful for God for 52 years. And I realized in all that that for the, for the last 45 years or 42 whatever years since my circumstances he has made a way to find himself alone with teenagers again over and And over again so
0: he's still out there
1: doing the same thing still out there doing it no doubt in my mind that he's still perpetrating the crime he might not be doing it six times a day anymore he might only be doing it two or three times a year but for me the consternation grows deeper every year because Mm -hmm. I realized that I, I had a very limited window of opportunity when I was eighteen to twenty-five to go to the police and do something about it, and I didn't. So I, in some can measure, you, can we
0: separate, So wh- why why did you have a limited amount of time? Is there a law? That yeah, the
1: statute to that? of limitations was seven years back mm-hmm. then. What um, is it now? Well, I think in Pennsylvania now it's 18 years. I'm not sure. Um, I can tell you this, though. Who who comes up with this number? Let let, let me tell you this. Um, Used to be a Pat Toomey fan. Until I found out the Catholic Church and Catholic Charities put millions of dollars into his re-election campaign. And he worked very strenuously to object to... Extending the statute of limitations as they've done in New Jersey and Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. to bring these priests and in my case a pastor uh, to, to justice and give their victims an opportunity to bring charges against them. So the reality of it is for those couple millions of dollars or whatever the number actually turned out to be Pat Toomey took for his furtherance of his career. He's left countless victims behind who have no opportunity once again to speak we are a silenced group silenced by society silenced by leadership and silenced by the church I could tell you more about that because that was a long-term endeavor to try and bring my message to the church that was rebuffed at every possible turn the church doesn't want to hear about it the church doesn't care if they have victims it's 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 a terrible place to be.
0: Do you think that one of the I mean, I, for me I've always felt that one of the contributing factors towards this type of behavior is the fact that this okay so we we the separation of church and state right churches don't pay taxes churches are outside of you know certain limitations and stuff like that like I I I just can't understand any of this stuff because it really at the root of it comes down to not. Uh, you know a religious problem a congregational problem it comes down to a human problem and the human problem is that our rights as you know our sexual rights our every right needs to be protected and we're, we're putting a statue of limitations on it like it irritates me what can what can like what can I do what can somebody who's listening to this podcast do right now to bring people like Robert Lee to justice well,
1: another endeavor I engaged in, but uh, from from numerous disappointments, kind of backed off of. I have a Facebook page called Victims Heard, and um, I put a couple
0: videos on that Facebook. Page. I'll put a link to it below here in the podcast, so people can can check yeah, it out. Great, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But
1: here's the long and the short of it. Um, I wanted to reach into Arizona to get the community in Arizona familiar with the, the behavior of, of Robert Lee Bartlett and I've got hundreds of views of the first video I think five or six hundred views then I did a second video a couple months later where I basically explained that I understand why people are reluctant to share it because it's a very egregious um, accusation to make against another person however yes. i go on to show in in written form with his own words how he continues to manipulate young young people for sex yeah. for sex yeah. and um the the the, the page i guess you would call it whatever you i don't, I don't even i don't know that much page, about yeah. social media but yeah, okay. the page actually did make its way out to uh, phoenix which is the very area where he lives mm-hmm. and a person that lives three blocks from the church responded to the video and sent me a, a little message to a messenger and i asked him if he would repost the video in arizona and he said he, he wouldn't do it and uh I had two other people that were in. Why did you know, Why did this a, person reach out to you just to uh, just to let me know that the to church you know was around the share street, it? around the corner from his house, and he knew who, who he knew the church I was talking about. But uh, I can't you know, share it. But he yeah. can't. But he can't share. It. We
0: do. We do have a problem with that in our culture, a share culture. Um, it's It's unfortunate that social media has that constraint, and I I find it in all avenues to be one of the major weaknesses that we don't use it. This tool. This utility to get the word out. We just kind of like, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm tired of people, um, just glossing over stuff and just being like, well, that's not, I I can't support that. Yes. We are all connected. We're all human. You know, like we need to take care of one another. They can join the group. They can share, but what else can we do? Like, it's interesting. And as the church bells ring as appropriate in the background, (laughs) um, it's such a difficult thing because i mean like for me it's like how do we stop this how do we stop this from ever happening and it's it's at least it's coming to light now i mean like you know you were saying like there's priests and there's pastors you know who are coming into the news cycle and like you know they're being exposed for this for you for you and for the people who were you know victims of, of robert lee i mean we just need people to hear this story so this, that in itself recording this podcast maybe enough for somebody out there in phoenix arizona to ask some questions and maybe if you're listening to this for for, for god's sake if you're listening to this and you are a member of his church and your son or daughter is going to third world countries this could be a way a, 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 like a wake-up call for you you need to take a look deeper at what's going on you know <laughs> things don't look always pretty at the surface there's other things that are happening at play
1: yeah I recently read a book by uh, Peter Schweitzer and he does a a really good job of uh, uh, drawing a correlation between what looks beautiful and what may be very ugly Uh, he he talks about the flower and uh, how we we look at certain flowers and they're beautiful but the Mm -hmm. more complicated the more colorful they are Mm -hmm. the deeper and more disgusting the dirt they have to go into in order to uh, sustain themselves. And I thought that was a really interesting analogy. But uh, the the, the thing is that Most victims don't want to speak about it because it's old. It's old news. Um, When I was in contact with the FBI, they assigned a special investigator from Arizona to my case, talked with him on the phone, sent him a copy of the book, sent him some other documentation that Bob Bartlett had actually posted on his own website where he talked about how they buy children from slavery. And it it was just the whole thing was just, you know. All about his involvement with children and this is recent I'm talking about within the last seven or eight years He wrote this because that's when he started this new church Mm -hmm. and incidentally He's bounced from state to state quite a few times. My guess is he's been running from allegations, but The the biggest concern I have or or not even that then I think the best way to combat this problem is if in fact in an organization Somebody is credibly accused of this Everyone in the organization should make it the topic of their conversation so that their children Will find the courage to tell them if they've been impacted by this crime What typically happens is everything goes hush hush they get the perpetrator out of town and then they make up some excuse as to why the perpetrator had to leave, uh, particularly when they're in a leadership partic- uh, mm-hmm. position, and particularly when they're in the church. Um, that's what the Catholic Church has been doing. They just keep cycling these guys around and they don't want the liability and I don't know if you've read any of the coverage on the the moves that they have made legally to keep themselves from having to spend any more money but you know they've they they had a 24 million dollar fund that they invested in a graveyard. Uh, so that they wouldn't have to pay it out uh, for maintenance and upkeep of a large grave site. Yeah, it's it's just amazing. And uh, the law enforcement doesn't want to get involved with it because, to be honest with you, this, in my opinion, uh, is not one inch short of the greatest crime against humanity that we have going right now. Now, I agree it's been around for a long time. I agree that it goes back beyond past the Roman Empire, and I understand all that. But we live in a society that's filled with information and can make things known that need to be made known in a matter of hours. And we still watch as the perpetrators of this crime slip out of the spotlight yeah. and disappear into the dark while the people around them don't even know what happened nor do they realize that they need to take the time to ask their own children I, I'll tell you this the average male-on-male molester has 150 victims in a lifetime wow. and typically has over 10,000 episodes of some form of sexual engagement with those victims so my point is that this is happening far more than your audience may think that it is yes and the only way we're gonna do something about it is to mobilize the people that are in the communities where they find out this is happening to put a stop to it to, to put a stop yeah.
0: to it to hold it to hold the perpetrator accountable now here's the thing that uh it's not even a really question and um, it's just kind of like a statement so it's like you know We've, in the last hour we've heard a lot you know and one of the things not only when I first met you but then after I read your book that I found comforting is that regardless of all the stuff that happened you still have faith yes and when I look at you now in this room you know on this Saturday afternoon as we recorded with the Sun I can tell that your heart is still full of love for you know for jesus for for god you know and like i can tell that you have faith and to me that is probably one of the i mean it's not the only reason but it's it's something that really you know pushed me to to get you here on the show because i find that to be inspiring that you can go through such traumatic events in your life but to still come out on top and to still have a positive, you know, presence in life and to be a good dad, you know, and you're mm-hmm. a good grandfather, you know what I mean? Like, right. And I think that that in itself is the greatest of healing processes to, to undergo is to is to, you know, have something happen like that and to still want to be a recipient of God's love. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure does. Um,
1: my experience has been that I can find comfort nowhere else. Um, I read a lot. I read books on various genres, and mm-hmm. to, I just read a lot. It's one of the things that I do. And I find the more engaged I find myself in reading secular work. I just read um, Brian Kilmeade's book, uh, Sam Houston and the Alamo Adventures. Very mm-hmm. interesting book, great book with regard to history, and what have you. And then I picked up The Madness of Crowds. Um, struggled my way through that one. Uh, it was a little bit more of a tough read. And then I took then I have a book that I read once a year. It's a it's it's really a masterpiece. It's called the Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, and it takes you on a day by day journey with Christ to see what he did, what he taught, um, and the 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 circumstances that surrounded his ministry. Explains the misunderstandings and apprehensions of his disciples. Um, and I find myself in their shoes from time to time when it comes to my faith, because we live in a world that is secular we live in a world that is physical and God has told us that uh, his kingdom is not of this world and although he's created it and although he sovereignly manages it this is not our ultimate home and Knowing that God sends new mercy to us every morning the Bible tells us and if you want me to start quoting Bible verses I can stay here all afternoon, mm-hmm. but um, uh, The the idea that God is merciful the idea that God wants to forgive me for for my sin The idea that God wants to forgive Bob Bartlett for what he did or what he's still doing uh, Is a great comfort to me um, My concern with regard to Bartlett and his circumstances is that without Physical restraint such as my the position that my brother is in now Mm -hmm. uh, He'll never have the opportunity to find redemption because his life is too Controlled by lust and the desires of his flesh Whereas if he were constrained he might really be able to come to terms with what he's done and um, try and seek repentance or try and repent and and seek forgiveness which i I doubt will ever happen uh in in his earthly life and and incidentally we need to do this during our earthly lifetime because as human beings we fell from god's grace in our earthly condition and so therefore the requirement of of (laughs) uh, acknowledging our sin and asking for forgiveness is a is a human requirement uh, as opposed to something we can do after we die in the spiritual realm but nevertheless, for me, the comfort that comes uh, by knowing that God sent his only son and his son agreed with him that he would come and, and hang on the cross to pay for the the, the the sin of the world, not the sins of the world, but mm. the sin of the world, that he agreed to do that before the world was even created is a bit of a mind blower to me. But I find a comfort in knowing not that, that there's going to be some justice, which I know there is going to be, but I'm not looking for justice. I'm looking for forgiveness and knowing that it is God's desire, the creator's desire to forgive me as an individual, to forgive you as an individual and to forgive people that will simply acknowledge his son as the, the price paid for our individual sin and acknowledge his word written over 1,500 years by 75 authors that all speak in unison Mm -hmm. uh, to take that word and make it our uh, our light and our guide. Having done that, that is the very method whereby I was able to come to a place where I'm able to accept what happened to take at least a partial healing from that. But more importantly to realize that the comfort in that is greater than anything man can offer man or anything that comforts can offer man.
0: Well, um, you know, I, I'm really, I'm happy to know you you know i'm a friend you know (laughs) and uh i mean the story is very heavy that we just got through but i really i wanted to get the story out there because i want i want to help you and i want to help anybody else that's going through this i'm going to provide a bunch of information in the podcast below check out the groups check out the book you know and and let's take a look at ourselves and like you know how we can help people who are victims You know, because that's I I think that that's the best thing that as humans we can do is to help one another. So I agree 100 percent. But the best thing we can do to help people is to educate them that
1: they need to turn in molesters.
0: Yes. You know, we can we can get that message out there today. Um, If you're listening to this and uh, you want to know more about um, Robert, I'll provide information here. Contact him through Facebook and stuff like that. Yeah,
1: I want to mention just before we, we close here that mm. uh, the book is no longer available. You can certainly Google it on Amazon. It shows up for $900 because they don't have any more. Is it out- $900? To sell. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> it's 900 now. Wow. But uh, I engaged with a fraud publisher for the book and they ended up, like uh, a good, good Christian publisher. Yeah. Uh, so they put themselves out there to be, but they ended up uh, not trying to market the book or whatever. So the only place that's really available is through me personally. If mm-hmm. you have an interest in the book, My email is rnewmiller at comcast.net. Just send me a note that you'd like a copy of the book and we'll make arrangements to get it to you. Uh, $12, that includes everything, shipping, handling, whatever. And I'd really like people to read the book because I really want to get my story out there.
0: Yes. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. been my pleasure. Thanks to Robert Newmiller. The book is Molested in God's House. This has been another episode of... Bobcast.